A wise person is more, you might say, concerned with understanding than simply knowing facts. Not that, that a wise person doesn't realize that it's important to know facts and, and value truth. That's certainly a part of wisdom. But uh, it isn't. I don't become wiser just by piling up facts. Suppose I memorized a thousand facts a day. And at the end of a week, I knew 7,000 more facts. Yeah. That wouldn't necessarily mean I'd be wiser. It might, in fact, show how foolish I am. Mm-hmm. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Sedicase, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. This episode is another very special one. I have with me Dr. C. Stephen C. Stephen Evans, uh, and this guy is a legend. If you know anything about uh, Kierkegaard, uh, Christian philosophy, philosophy in general, um, Euthyphro Dilemma, like this guy's all over the place. His stuff is really, really helpful. And I'm very excited today to be talking to him about wisdom and particularly his uh, essay, Wisdom as Conceptual Understanding, a Platonist Perspective. And that's uh, from the journal Faith and Philosophy. Really, really excited to jump in with him here. Before we do, I want to thank everyone who's making this podcast happen over on Patreon. You guys are awesome. It takes a lot of work to put this podcast together. And uh, I'd love to be doing it full time. So I need more support from viewers like you. If you benefit from this podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon patron. You can find the link in the description wherever you're getting this podcast at. You can also support the podcast by getting some Parker's Pensies merchandise. You can find uh, the link there uh, in the description as well. If you're on YouTube, you can find it in my uh, tab store, store tab. Um, so that's another way. If you guys uh, have thoughts or comments on this episode, leave them in, uh, leave a comment for us. That would be huge. That actually helps the algorithm, but also I love hearing from you guys. And there's a bunch more ways you can support the podcast or get in touch with us. You can find all those in the description wherever you're at. Uh, that's probably enough self-promotion for now. Let's get in and find out what wisdom is from Dr. C. Stephen Evans. Dr. Evans, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Great yeah, to be this, here. This is fantastic. Uh, I've been reading your stuff for so long, and uh, I came across this essay because of uh, Brandon Rickabaugh. He shared it with our whole cohort over there at uh, PBA, Palm Beach Atlantic University. And you note in the essay, you note that, uh, you know, uh, etymologically, philosophy is the love of wisdom. And you'll see that in philosophy intro books all the time. Philosophy is the love of wisdom. But you state in the paper that contemporary philosophy has surprising, surprisingly little to say about wisdom. Uh, and I wanted to just get your thoughts initially. What, why do you think that is? Well, I'm afraid part of it has to do with what we might call professionalization. Hmm. Uh, you know, in, in the old days, philosophy was not uh, an academic thing. Plato, I mean, Plato started a school, but it wasn't like, you know, that was his you know, professional job, uh, professor of philosophy at the University of Athens. Yeah. Um, but now philosophy is pretty much exclusively uh, the province of, uh, of people who teach philosophy in the academy. And the academy is a profession. And so whenever you have professionalization, you have te technicalities, you have jargon, uh, and you have to have ways of sort of distinguishing who gets ahead in the profession. 
Yeah. And I think often we look for things that are easily recognizable. For example, skills of a certain sort. Uh, people who are really good at logic or mathematics get ahead in lots of fields hmm. uh, because those are technical skills and you can sort of objectively say who's good and who's not. So I think contemporary philosophy probably puts too much value on technical skills and uh, not enough on wisdom because wisdom doesn't lend itself to professionalization. It's hard to measure, hard to describe. Uh, and, uh, Frankly, uh, we all know that there are people who are probably not terribly well-educated, but we would still call them as wise people. Mm. And we probably all know people who have PhDs who we don't think are particularly wise. Uh, sure. And I'm afraid that probably a lot of philosophers fall into that uh, category. Philosophy, I think the people who get ahead in philosophy tend to be people who are very, very smart uh, and they're very clever uh, they can put together intricate arguments, but often I think the arguments are in the service of ideas that are not necessarily wise or good ideas. Mm. So I think cleverness and shrewdness in that sense doesn't necessarily correlate uh, with with uh, wisdom. Uh, yeah. In fact, Kierkegaard uh, think uh, my my favorite philosopher Kierkegaard thinks that a wise person will often be shrewd. But just the person uses their shrewdness to be sure that they aren't acting shrewdly. That is, they're mm -hmm. trying to do what's right rather than simply what would advantage them or get them ahead in a worldly way. Yeah. So you sort of have this knowledge of what's shrewd, but you use that knowledge to avoid doing what's shrewd. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dr. Evans, you that professionalization and uh, specialization of terms and such, does that cross um, both the analytic continental divide, uh, whether you think that uh, divide is, is accurate or not. Is that is that on both sides of the... Yeah, I think it, to, to some degree, uh, I, I think it's probably a little worse in the analytic uh, camp because uh, analytic camp puts more emphasis on logical arguments, uh, mm -hmm. things that you can put into, and that's sort of that's a more objective and more quantifiable and measurable kind of skill. While uh, continental philosophy in a way has fewer professional rules. Sometimes I will say this is not a compliment to continental philosophy. Sometimes when I'm reading continental philosophy, I feel like I'm in the middle of a game where people are making up the rules. <laughs> that's fantastic. And I don't know what they are. <laughs> and so it, it can be confusing, Yeah, but, uh, uh, I think uh, I don't know what to say except uh, it, it it probably uh, the situation is different, but there's still people who are you might say skilled at playing whatever game is involved. Yeah, and uh, and that's not necessarily going to be the same thing as wisdom. So I can think of people who do continental philosophy. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll give one example. I hope it's not too offensive uh, to anybody who's a fan of of John Caputo. But Caputo has a, a and, and Derrida have had famous discussions of the idea of, of, uh, of gifts mm -hmm. in which they've sort of made arguments that somehow you can't really give a gift because a gift has got to be given freely with no expectation of any kind of return. But the whole idea of a gift implies that we have a debt of gratitude to the one who gives us the gift. 
And so they've tried to argue that there's something incoherent about the idea of a gift. There's a whole big discussion in continental philosophy about the gift. Hmm. But I think that discussion is fundamentally uh, confused. And uh, uh, it ref- it, I would say the articles reflect more cleverness than they do wisdom. Mm. Okay. So uh, the, the fault is maybe more on the analytic side, but not exclusively so. Okay, that's really helpful. Um, well, before we dive too much deeper into wisdom uh, itself as, as conceptual understanding, I wanted to just briefly ask you about uh, your journey into philosophy. What, what made you want to get into philosophy and become a professional philosopher yourself? Well, I am. Uh... I, I, I went to Wheaton College as an undergraduate, and in those days, not now, sadly, Wheaton required a philosophy course. Mm. And uh, I signed up for a course in ethics my very first semester from a philosopher named Stuart Hackett. Oh, wow. And I just fell in love with the discipline. One of the things we read in that course was a book by Kierkegaard called Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. And that definitely got me interested in Kierkegaard, and I've been interested in Kierkegaard ever since. So mainly it was just a matter of falling in love. So uh, I loved the ideas. I enjoyed uh, thinking about them. And also, as a Christian, I could see the value of philosophy for uh, helping uh, not prove Christianity is true or anything as grand as that, but blocking certain kinds of criticisms and uh, mm. certain sorts of objections that people made to faith. So I saw, uh, although I think philosophy has intrinsic value as uh, you know, a search for wisdom, I think it also has apologetic value uh, yeah. in helping Christians uh, defend uh, the, the reasonableness of their faith. Yeah. What, while while you were at Wheaton, um, was Art Holmes there? I can't remember if you had him or not. Yes, Art Holmes was a huge uh, influence on me. Uh, he became my advisor, and I became his uh, teaching assistant. Okay. And we spent many, many, many hours talking in his office. Wow. Uh, so uh, late, late in my career, I actually wrote a, a very long 600-and-something page history of Western philosophy which is dedicated to the memory of Arthur Holmes. Okay, uh, I, I thought I, I thought I saw that in there. Yeah, uh, he taught I, me he taught me the history of Western philosophy and uh, and its value, and so uh, I owe him a great debt. Yeah, so, I miss him terribly. So I, I never knew him personally, but um, he's got like Wheaton College put like eighty something odd lectures of his on YouTube, and when I was an undergrad in college. Uh, I found those and I went through them all. So I had 80 hours of Dr. Holmes lectures on the history of philosophy. And so I, I feel a, a slight, you know, uh, kindred spirit with you that, that he also taught me philosophy, which is pretty. Yeah, well, those, those lectures were his history of philosophy course, which was a year long course. Mm-hmm. So when I, I took that course as a sophomore at Wheaton in 19, wow. it would have been 1970, 71. So awesome. Yeah. Just a, a godly dude awesome guy and i just i love the way that he would embody the uh the philosopher that he's talking about he'd really get in there and yeah. represent the idea as if he were them yeah yeah arthur arthur showed me the importance that even if it, in the end you want to criticize a philosopher or reject a philosopher or show that his view is wrong you you first have to understand him and to understand him you have to you have to try to be empathetic and think yeah. uh think through things from from that point of view and if you if you can't uh, exercise that sort of charity, 
you really can't criticize. You have you haven't earned the right to criticize someone. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a great that's a great word. Um, well, so Dr. Evans, you, you started out at, at Wheaton there. Uh, you went through and, and got your PhD as well. Um, can you just tell the the audience where are you at right now, and and what are some of the positions that you, you're holding? Well, uh, I'm still at the moment. Uh, I'm um, a university professor of philosophy and the humanities at Baylor University in the philosophy department, and we have a doctoral program as well as an undergraduate program in philosophy. And I've enjoyed teaching at Baylor for more than 20 years. Uh, Before that, I taught at Calvin, Calvin University. And before that, I taught at St. Olaf, where I directed the Kierkegaard Library there. And before that, I taught at Wheaton, uh, my alma mater. So I've I've been around. uh, Currently, I'm still, although I'm ending my relationship with them, I'm still a, a professorial fellow at the Lagos Institute for analytical and exegetical theology at the University of St. Andrews. Yeah. I've done that for about six years and I've enjoyed very much helping start that program. Uh, and I just recently accepted a new a new position, a part-time position uh, as a professorial research fellow at the Institute for Ethics and Society, mm. uh, which is at the University of Notre Dame in Sydney, Australia. Uh, it's directed by a very good friend of mine named John Lippitt, who's a very fine Christian philosopher. Yeah. He's the author of the best best book on forgiveness that I've ever read. I highly recommend it. Okay. Yeah. I'll have to, I'll I'll definitely check that one out. Yeah. So I love that. um, I love that you use philosophy. You you go in deep uh, on particular issues. Like you, you do some philosophy of religion type stuff that is really helpful and beneficial for apologists. You go in on just straight philosophy, just, Hey, let's, let's figure this out. You also do some historical stuff with Kierkegaard. You're, you're all over the place. And I, I really like those interests. Um, getting back to wisdom. I, I think it's so fascinating because, um, wisdom seems to be something that's, I don't know if I want to say neglected, that might be too strong a word, but it, it's, it's not um, analyzed. It's not taken. It's not given as much intention in modern philosophy. Perhaps um, w- would you say that's right? We, we've already kind of broached that, but um, is it fair to say that that modern philosophy doesn't spend a whole time, a whole lot of time, talking about wisdom? It's, I'm afraid it is true. Uh, if you just look, if you if you Google, let's say, uh, philosophical terms, uh, justification, truth, knowledge. Uh, warrant uh, in epistemology or uh, all kinds of terms in metaphysics uh, are you'll find far more articles written about those subjects than about wisdom uh, per se so i think it is it is the case that uh, philosophers don't spend a great deal of time uh, today talking about wisdom there is an article in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which I criticize in my article. Because, yeah, I caught that. Uh, it basically uh, sort of reviews what a lot of philosophers have said, and it, it, there's really not a lot there. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and the, ar- the article basically just tries to put together a bunch of things people have said. Uh, and I think overemphasizes the role of propositional knowledge in wisdom, so that would be my my objection. But yeah, let, let me just sort of say where I'm, I'm coming from here. Uh, some people people who associate me as a Kierkegaard scholar may find this surprising, but I actually think of myself as a Christian Platonist. Uh, 
that is, there's a long tradition of Christian Platonism that goes back at least as far as St. Augustine. Mm-hmm. Um, in the uh, early modern period, they were a group of philosophers called the Cambridge Platonists. Uh, in the, the 20th century, I think the most well-known uh, and one of the wisest uh, people is C.S. Lewis, who made no secret of his attraction for Plato and Platonism. Yeah. Even in the last uh, version of the Narnia, the last book of the Narnia books, The Last Battle, the old professor says, Plato was right all along. <laughs> yeah. so, good. so Lewis loved uh, Plato. And uh, turning to more, Lewis actually had a professional degree in philosophy, although he taught literature, of course. Mm-hmm. But he was trained as a philosopher. and He was no dummy about philosophy. But if we want a more academic example, uh, Robert Adams, who uh, is one of the philosophers I admire the most, Adams's book, Finite and Infinite Goods, is a kind of defense, uh, contemporary defense of Christian plate of a, of a version of Christian Platonism. Okay. So, uh, so I, I'm in this sort of tradition, and it may be odd because most people think of Kierkegaard as the father of existentialism, and you don't mm-hmm. think of Plato and existentialism in the same. But if you think of Socrates, who was Plato's teacher, there's definitely a lot of existential themes in Socrates. Mm-hmm. And Socrates was Kierkegaard's favorite philosopher. Wow. Uh, and I think that Kierkegaard absorbed a big dose of Platonism. So I think of Kierkegaard more as a Christian Platonist in the tradition of St. Augustine or Augustine than I think of him as the father of existentialism. I think wow. that's a, a somewhat misleading. The father of existentialism is a misleading description because uh, – it's true that Kierkegaard influenced uh, uh, the contemporary, the 20th century existentialists, but they all uh, were very different from him. Yeah. And, and, and even though they used his writings, they didn't necessarily use his writings in ways that he would have approved or liked. So calling Kierkegaard the father of existentialism is in a way, it's sort of like calling, you might call it say, the Bible is the father of Mormonism or something. I mean, the Mormons mm. appeal to the Bible, but not necessarily, they don't necessarily do that in ways that historical Orthodox Christians would agree is, yeah. is right. Yeah, that's a good, that's so a good example. That's, a, that's an analogy. Anyway, uh, uh, so I actually think of Kierkegaard as a, as a Platonist. So mm. there's, no, there's no inconsistency between my own Platonism and, uh, and my interest in, uh, in Kierkegaard. Yeah, You can see this in Kierkegaard at many places. For example, in this little book that I talked about, Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing, mm-hmm. Kierkegaard in that book identifies God with the good, capital G. And that's a very Platonic theme, of course. Uh, Plato thinks of the, 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 the one reality that's the source of everything as the good, capital G. He doesn't, Plato himself doesn't think of the good as a person. And so Christian Platonism has to make some changes. Uh, and so Augustine says, the good is not just an abstract form or an idea, it's God. And yeah. the form is something like an idea in God's mind. Uh, it's God's thoughts, what mm-hmm. we call uh, the Platonic forms or concepts. But anyway, that's the sort of background. And so uh, Plato would have said that a wise person is someone who understands the forms and the forms are something like universals, uh, goodness, justice, uh, 
uh, and to know, it's not just to sort of know a good thing, but to know what goodness is, not to just recognize a just society, but to know something about justice. And notice that that justice is more a, uh, a possible, it's a possibility, it's a universal. And so there is a kind of, if, if we want to say wisdom is knowledge, in my view, it's less knowledge of propositions and more a kind of conceptual knowledge, knowledge of concepts. And I think it might be more helpful to call this understanding rather than yeah. knowledge, because contemporary philosophy tends to identify knowledge with knowledge of propositions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you you uh, you'd said in the in the paper that uh, there's this more ancient understanding of knowledge uh, following the Greeks, and uh, I think Locke picked up on it as a. Uh, is like a, t- a type of seeing. Um, and, and so you said, yeah, conceptual understanding is better so that we don't get confused with the modern understanding of knowledge is justified true belief or something. Yeah. But the difference is sort of this. Um, take a proposition like all human beings are mortal. All mm-hmm. humans are mortal. Now, that's a true proposition. Um, and we can say that it's true. And if you if you recognize its truth value, there's a sense in which you know it as a proposition, meaning you know its truth value. But understanding the proposition is different from knowing its truth value. To understand its proposition, you have to understand something about, well, what does it mean to be human? Hmm. Uh, For example, uh, if my brain were uploaded to a computer, would I still be a human being? Hmm. (laughs) You you can't answer that question uh, and and that might bear on the question of whether I'm mortal or not. If I could have an afterlife in a computer, maybe I'm not mortal. Maybe I'm some sort of uh, eternal uh, object, right? Yeah. So so un- understanding the concept of, of what it is to be human is important. And also, what does it mean to be mortal? Mm-hmm. What does it really mean to die? Uh, and I take it that one of the lessons of Kierkegaard uh, is that it's one thing to sort of know a fact, know a proposition. It's another thing to have a deep understanding of that fact by understanding in a deep way the concepts that the fact employs. Yeah. And, and, and a wise person is more, you might say, concerned with understanding than simply knowing facts. Not that, that a wise person doesn't realize that it's important to know facts and, and value truth. That's certainly a part of wisdom, but uh, it isn't. I don't become wiser just by piling up facts. Suppose I memorized a thousand facts a day, and at the end of a week, I knew seven thousand more facts. Yeah, that wouldn't necessarily mean I'd be wiser. It might, in fact, show how foolish I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> how I spend my time. Yeah, you neglecting the rest of your life to memorize these facts and. If they're not uh, even it pertinent. What facts am I interested in knowing and why am I interested in knowing them? Yeah. Uh, those are the things that are important. Uh, so uh, yeah. Kierkegaard yeah. has a very amusing story that, that sort of illustrates the point. He has a story about a man who was crazy, who was insane. He, he was in an asylum and he escaped from the asylum. But he said, you know what? If uh, when they recognize me, they're going to send me back. I've got to prove that I'm not crazy anymore. Hmm. So he hit on the following strategy. He said, uh, I'm going to tie a ball to a rope and tie it to my waist and it's in, in behind me. And every time I walk, when the ball hits my bum, I'm going to say, bang, the world is round. 
thereby, because I know this objective fact, I'll prove that I'm sane. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, he's providing proof that he's still crazy. Yeah. (laughs) I really like that, man. I I need to read some more uh, Kierkegaard there. Um, That story is in concluding unscientific postscript. Okay. That's perfect. Um, we mentioned uh, concepts, so we have uh, wisdom as conceptual understanding. We're going to dive in deeper on that, but uh, just real briefly, like what what do you take to be concepts? I I I, um, I looked up the SCP article on this, and there's there was like at least three. There's concepts or representations or universals or abilities, and uh, I'm I'm still trying to get clear on that myself. Like what 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 do we mean by concept here? Well, I think of concepts as universals, and mm-hmm. I think of them. A universal is not an entity. It's not a thing. It's a possible way a thing can be. It's either a possible way of being or a possible property that a thing can have, an entity, a substance can have. So uh, a type of substance is a universal, and the properties of substances are universals. And so concepts are, uh, in a sense, concepts that, that capture universals. So to have an understanding of a universal is sort of to have an understanding of a way of be, a possible way of being. Uh, so to know what it what it means to be green is to know what it means for something to be green. So that, mm. that's uh, you can think of of concepts as things that unlock dimensions of reality for us. Yeah. If we have a grasp of a concept then we have an understanding of what it means for something to be in a certain way. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, I think this sort of understanding comes in degrees. Yeah. And so the, in my article, the first stab is to say that wisdom is understanding of concepts. But of course I have to refine that mm-hmm. because it's not just, first of all, we have to distinguish between divine wisdom and human wisdom. Yeah. Now I take it, uh, well, one thing that's entailed by my Christian Platonism is all universals are in some sense grounded in God, in God's yes. uh, being, his mind, their ideas in the divine mind. So uh, if that's the case, God is supremely wise because only God has a perfect understanding of every universal. He has a perfect understanding of, of every possible way of being. And that's how God can create because He can create beings because he knows what it is to be and understands all the possible ways uh, things can be. So that's important. But for human beings, our our wisdom also consists in understanding. But, of course, we need to understand those possibles that bear most closely on human life and what it means to live well. Mm -hmm. And so particularly... uh, what does it mean to be holy, to be honorable, to be just, to be truthful? The virtues are, are possible ways of, of being that we need to understand. And I think that uh, uh, we, we as, as humans uh, need to understand what it is to be human mm-hmm. and, uh, as a possibility. And that means we have to understand ourselves as creatures made by God in God's image. So the, the scripture says that uh, the, the foundation of wisdom is what scripture calls the fear of the Lord. And I think that the fear of the Lord is simply something like 
it's a proper reverence for God that's grounded in an understanding of who God is and, and who I am in relation to God. So I know that I owe God uh, my devotion, my obedience, my love, uh, and that God has the right to hold me accountable. As in Hebrews, God is described as the one to whom we much give an account. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, fear, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom because for us humans, wisdom begins when we see ourselves uh, we have a true understanding of God, a true understanding of, of what it is to be human, and, and we see ourselves in relation to God, and particularly in relationship to God's purposes for us. Yeah. Because I think these uh, possible ways of being that we should strive to actualize in our lives all are grounded in God's creative uh, intentions or purposes for us. Yeah, amen. Um, oh, man, there's there's so much there. That's, that's such... Uh, there's... A bunch of different ways I want to go with it, but um, initially thinking about uh, wisdom and sages who who um, who don't acknowledge uh, God. So we have wisdom is uh, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. So uh, it seems like Plato didn't fear the Lord uh, in the sense that uh, Solomon's talking about in Proverbs one seven. Maybe, maybe you think he did, and you can you can correct me on that. Um, but I think we'd want to say that Plato and Socrates are wise, but it's like they don't have the foundation, which is the fear of the Lord. How do you make sense of, of sages who, who don't fear the Lord, I guess? Well, I think uh, my own view of Plato and, and uh, especially of Socrates, his mm-hmm. teacher, is that they were making their way towards a belief in, in God. Okay. If you read their writings, they're very critical of a popular Greek religion of Homeric theology of the Zeus, the stories about Zeus and uh, Apollo and, uh, and all the other uh, gods. Yeah. Uh, Plato, Plato recognized, first of all, that uh, these gods were not, not totally good and, and powerful. And so they were inadequate as gods. He had a conception of what the true God would be like. And, and secondly, uh, and he criticized Homeric religion on, the, on that grounds. Um, so I think I think Plato was on the way to being a theist. Uh, Aristotle mm. perhaps is a theist because he clearly has a belief in one God. Yeah. Uh, now his his God is not the Christian God because Aristotle's God doesn't love us. <laughs> we love mm. him, but he doesn't yeah. really care about us. So I don't mean to say wisdom is always something that comes in in degrees. Mm-hmm. So I can say that Socrates and Plato had wisdom in the sense that they surpassed the wisdom of their contemporaries, and they were on the road. Augustine, many years later, centuries later, wrote an essay uh, called "Of True Religion," in which he argues that if Plato had been alive in Jesus's day, Plato would have become a Christian. He would mm-hmm. have welcomed. Uh, the, the way Augustine puts it is Christ fulfills Plato's hopes. Mm, he fulfilled good. what Plato was looking for. He didn't, yeah. Plato didn't find it, but it's what he was looking for. Yeah. And there are, there are remarkable things in, in the, in the Platonic dialogues attributed to Socrates. Uh, for example, in, at his trial, uh, uh, Socrates, you know, he's on trial for his life. Uh, and he and he's told, well, if you stop doing philosophy, we'll, we might let you off. Yeah. 
Socrates says, I can't do that because God has given me this as my vocation and I have to obey God rather than men. So if you tell me to stop doing this, I can't because I have to obey God. It yeah. sounds like exactly what the apostles say. In yeah, Acts. straight out of Acts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. So uh, I think uh, Socrates, and Socrates says one other thing in the, the Apology, which is his this account of his trial, that I, strikes me as deeply wise and grounded in a kind of almost Christian understanding of, of things. He says to his, uh, the people who just convicted him, he says, you think you're hurting me. You're condemning me to death. But actually you're not because no one can be harmed uh, by someone else because you only harm yourself by doing evil. Mm. So you are harming yourselves by doing evil, but you're not really harming me because you're not harming my soul. Yeah. Uh, you're only killing my body. Mm. And uh, that's, that's a pretty remarkable thing for Socrates to have said. And Socrates says, he says, God doesn't allow for a good person to be ultimately harmed. Mm. And that struck, strikes me as a very wise thing. So, so mm. I think there is wisdom. And as for Aristotle, if you read his Nicomachean Ethics, there are things in there that I don't agree with and don't like sure. and don't think are wise at all. But there are lots of things that Christians have found inspiring and helpful for, uh, for centuries yeah. uh, in terms of how they think about ethics. So, so certainly uh, human wisdom apart from Scripture is not, perfect even with scripture our, our wisdom is never perfect yeah. but nevertheless it's to say it's not perfect isn't to say that there's nothing there that, that there's no such thing as if you look at say uh, uh, the Buddha or if you look at Confucius you can find wisdom in those writings uh, yeah. and I don't think Christians have to reject or deny the, that that at all because it's a part of what we might call common grace yeah God uh, uh, insight that God provides to uh, makes possible to his human creatures. Yeah. And we live in the same world that they live in. And so if they, if they live in this world and they successfully navigate it, then they're going to have some true beliefs. They're going to have some wisdom that they can share on uh, with us. That doesn't, doesn't neglect anything that, that uh, scripture says. I, I really like that. Um, Dr. Evans. So uh, going back on, on concepts, uh, this was pretty cool. You you pull in some uh, Heideggerian type stuff, and you say concepts reveal or uncover some aspect of reality. And I wonder, um, going back on that idea, do do concepts do concepts mediate reality for us? I, I think when when we grasp them well, they do. Yeah, okay. we, we have more than a superficial uh, understanding, and this is why it's so important to realize that understanding comes in degrees. Yeah. Yeah, Aristotle, I mean, Heidegger, I think, in, in his book, Being in Time, he talks about truth as, he uses a German word which can be translated as uncoveredness. <laughs> it actually yeah. is very close to the original Greek word for truth. Huh. Uh, and, and in a sense, we can talk about truth as sort of a gra grasping reality as it is. Mm -hmm. as opposed to just grasping facts about reality, yeah, which can be done in a superficial uh, way. So uh, uh, the, the way uh, I think Heidegger puts it is, uh, the way I would put it is that the, the truth that is uncovered is 
when we have a sort of deep understanding of being, of a possible way of being, and that's that's a kind of conceptual understanding. Yeah. So the the wise the person, let's say, who has let's say an understanding of goodness, doesn't just know one sort of goodness, but knows all the possible ways one could be good. Yeah. And that's a different from knowing uh, facts about what what is good it's knowing what could be good yeah what's necessarily good so uh a lot of this has to do with what philosophers call modalities terms mm-hmm. like possibility and necessity yeah so uh, uh for example god we we understand god is not just good but he's necessarily good mm-hmm. he doesn't just have contingent goodness it isn't that just god happens to always do the right thing but goodness is so essential to his nature and character that it's just impossible for God to uh, to do what's evil or bad or wrong. Yeah, yeah. So, so we have this. Um, so, understanding is is deeper. It has to do with uh, modalities, knowing uh, possibilities and necessities. Uh, how, how about um, like like know how knowledge uh, knowledge by uh, acquaintance? Well, I don't know that these things depending on what we mean, I guess, by them. But does does knowing how to live well uh, factor in? Not not just so I, I can imagine someone who could know the possibilities uh, more than more than um, a, a sage who actually lives it out. Is there yeah. is there a difference between the between those two types? Sure, sure, and. So I think the deepest and most important thing is to know the ideals, to know what we should be striving to be like, to know okay. what's valuable. Yeah. And one of the things that's really important, I think, about having this sort of seeing knowledge, this sort of conceptual knowledge, mm-hmm. is that we don't just sort of know facts, but we appreciate the value of what we know uh-huh. because we understand what it is to be. To understand being in a certain way is to understand uh, what's valuable or disvaluable about it. Yeah. This is very much a part of the Greeks. In modern philosophy, David Hume famously decreed that facts and values are totally distinct and have nothing to do with each other. Yeah. Now, the Greeks and the medieval philosophers would have rejected that idea entirely because they would have said, to understand reality, being, is in some way to understand what's good and what's bad. Hmm. Uh, They equated. uh, In fact, even uh, Augustine said that even Satan, who, if he exists at all, can't be totally bad. Because nothing can exist if if it doesn't have some goodness, if it doesn't serve some good purpose or function. So I was going to ask you about privation, if we have to be privationists about uh, evil, uh, because uh, because of because uh, the concepts exist in God's mind. And I wanted to bring up about like uh, the objection to Plato's forms about like hair or filth, you know, the form of hair and filth and stuff. So, um, so I wanted to just toss that in as well. Sorry to interrupt you there. Yeah. Well, I think there's nothing wrong with having a form of hair because hair can be beautiful. That's <laughs> true. Yeah. It has sure. a function. Uh, uh, but, but I do think that what we call uh, filth or dirty is, is, uh, I mean, dirt, Per se, just dirt being dirt isn't bad. Sure. Yeah. Right. <laughs> dirt is only bad when it's impairing, let's say, a function. When I, my hands are dirty and I can't eat properly because I'm getting dirt in my mouth, and dirt is not for eating. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I need to get rid of the dirt. So, in that sense, a dirt dirt is a, 
is not it's not playing its proper role and, and function. Uh, yeah. So that's that's uh, that's an important part of the story. I think there's something deeply right about the claim that uh, that what the medievals called the the transcendentals, being, yeah. goodness, and beauty, are in some sense universal aspects. They're not just differential features. Everything that exists has being, mm-hmm. and everything that exists has some sort of uh, beauty, and everything that exists has some sort of value. Those mm-hmm. are uh, elements. So. Yes, but we have privation. We have things that have sort of lost their uh, value, lost their function, lost their ability, uh, Not maybe not totally. Uh, I don't think that, however, the, the privationist view is the whole story. Okay. Because I don't think that it totally uh, accounts for uh, sin, sinfulness. And yeah. Sin. Positive uh, features. Yeah. The, the idea is uh, when we're talking about being – and, and the badness of something, I think we talk about privation. But when we talk about actions, we're talking about choices yeah. and, and wills. And the will and acts of choice are dynamic. Yeah. They're not just substances. They're actions. And so uh, I do think part of the mystery of evil is that we humans not only fail to be all we could be, that would be privation, but we can actively choose what is lesser good over a higher good. And that choice is not just a privation. It's in some sense bad or wrong. It's yeah. uh, so I think, I think evil, the way I would put it uh, is something like this in Kierkegaard has a book called the concept of anxiety, where he tries to explore original sin, hmm. how it came about. And it's really a puzzle. How is it that people who are created by God, who presumably aren't sinful. God wouldn't create people as sinful. How do they sin? Yeah. You would think to sin, they would have to have some sort of bad motive. Well, where did that motive come from? Right. Uh, it's, it's a very mysterious and puzzling thing. And Kierkegaard doesn't claim that he fully explains it, but, but here's the story he tells. In order to make us possible friends of God, God had to create us with freedom, mm-hmm. free will. But, in giving us freedom, God necessarily gives us the power to, in a sense, prize our own freedom above our relationship to God. Yeah. And that's what sin amounts to. He puts it as this way. It's as if we lay hold of our own freedom and try to make ourselves the basis of ourselves. Rather than seeing ourselves as grounded in God and depending on God, we want to depend, we want to make ourselves the center of the, of our, our lives in the universe, so yeah. uh, so it's all it's all about freedom and and a sort of misuse of freedom, but the possibility of the misuse of freedom is inherent in being free. Yeah. So that's his explanation of how uh, sin comes into being. But I do think sinfulness is not just privation. Okay. I, I think we have to bring a, another category that the Greeks lacked. Yeah. So it's something that we need biblical insight to understand. Okay. Yeah, that's really helpful. I, I'm reminded of uh, Dutch theologian Herman Bavink's uh, understanding where he, he goes through the almost exact same chain of reasoning that you just went through and says, we have to call it active privation. And he kind of goes in. Um, so it, that's that's really helpful. I, I really appreciate that. Um, when it, So when it comes to being wise and becoming wise, we have, you know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Um, but if wisdom is uh, conceptual understanding, then uh, how do we go about 
uh, acquiring concepts. So what, do you have a particular theory of like concept acquisition? Yeah, in, in the article, I briefly allude to, uh, to Wittgenstein's view, mm-hmm. which is that we acquire concepts in learning to live as part of a, of a language-speaking community. Yeah. Uh, we, uh, we're taught concepts, uh, but we're not just taught them in, in the sense that people have a list of words and then a list of meanings. Yeah. Rather, you're, you're taught uh, uh, how, how is it uh, that a parent teaches you that something is not good? Uh, well, sometimes perhaps letting you experience the consequences <laughs> or, yeah. or maybe uh, just saying that, oops, did I just lose you? Hold on here. I've, uh, I'm still here. Yeah, I can. Okay, you're still looks, there. Looks okay, good. good. Yeah, I have temporarily just lost the screen, but okay. uh, so I think in general we we uh, we acquire concepts by uh, learning what it is to be part of a of a, a community and and living what uh, you might say a form of life. Yeah. Uh, but I think that the especially important concepts that are really crucial to wisdom. Uh, come about from things like the Christian community, the church, which ideally ought to be a community that helps us understand God. Uh And uh, Oh, my phone is ringing here, but I'll, uh, I'm just going to get rid of this. Hold on. Yep. No worries. All right. Uh, Okay. Um, So we should, uh, we should come to understand ourselves better by understanding God's love for us and what it is we we really only understand love properly when we understand, I think, God's love. Okay. Uh, and then we can model. So we can talk about this in two ways, sort of from a human point of view. Humans acquire concepts by developing uh, experiences and learning to live as part of a community. One reason that most cultures think that wisdom is something that old people have, I yeah. don't know if it's true, but... <laughs> <laughs> Because they've at least had more opportunities to acquire wisdom mm-hmm. by more experiences, more uh, more living, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, so one reason that that uneducated people can be wise is that uneducated uneducated people can still have acquired wisdom by living. Uh, yeah. They they may understand something about what life is about. One one key element I think in in understanding uh, the value of concepts is that one has to have the right kind of emotional engagement. Yeah. So one of the things I bring into my story is that emotions can be uh, ways of grasping a reality. So if I suppose I'm walking down the street and I see one of my neighbors, let's say uh, he's walking his dog and he suddenly gets angry at his dog and starts beating his dog. And how do I feel? I feel angry. I yeah. feel revulsion. I feel uh, this is just horrible. And I would say that emotion is revelatory. It, it gives me a grasp that, that something is being done here that is awful and horrible. And, yeah. uh, and, and so uh, when I see, let's say, a human being suffering and I feel compassion, compassion is an emotion that helps me see something about the right way to grasp the value of, of this, this person is in need and, and I can help, then I should help be helping if I can. That, yeah. that, so our emotions are a big part of the, of the story. And, and a big part of acquiring wisdom is developing the right kinds of emotions. Our culture tends yeah. to think of emotions as just 
oh, they're just feelings. They come and go. We can't control them. That's completely false. Mm. Uh, it is true that we can't just generate a feeling. I can't just sort of uh, feel courageous by saying, okay, I'm going to feel courageous now, and then I get it. But, yeah. uh, that's not the way it is. It takes time to acquire uh, the right kinds of emotions and practice. Yeah. But nevertheless, we can do it. So uh, here's an example. Uh, uh, my, I think the best theory of emotion is from my good friend, Christian philosopher, Robert Roberts. Yep. Roberts has uh, his account of emotions is uh, an emotion is like an experience, but it's like experiencing as you construe something in a certain way. Mm-hmm. So when I, when I experience someone as uh, hurting and I construe them, I may feel compassion for them, right? Well, suppose uh, recently I had my three-year-old grandson visit here, and uh, one night he threw a real tantrum, and and he was a real pain. He was making us all miserable, screaming, uh, and it would have been easy just to construe him as a nuisance, (laughs) right? Yeah. Uh, And feel anger and irritation as, as the emotion. And, and that's, that's how I initially felt. But then I had to sort of work on myself and say, he's a three-year-old. He's hungry. He's tired. And that's how three-year-olds are. Mm-hmm. And if I construe him as a three-year-old who's hungry and tired, I will feel some compassion and sympathy. Instead of being irritated, mm. I will feel uh, compassion for him. And so I would say we do have some control over our emotions. And when we work at that over time, we, de- we can develop habits, uh, as Aristotle would say, habitus. Yeah. Uh, we yeah. can develop. Uh, and, that, and that's a, in many ways developing Christian character is a matter of developing uh, these virtues. The difference between Christian character and what we might call ordinary secular uh, character is that many of the Christian virtues, the fruits of the spirit, and faith, hope, and love are qualities that we can only gain with God's help. Mm. So we can't do it just by trying harder or willing it. We Mm. have to be willing to accept God's grace and God's help uh, to acquire those virtues. But still, we can do it over time. We can grow in grace. We can become more sanctified. We can become more holy. Yeah. I think some something uh, uh, tying in uh, or jumping off that point, something I learned from C.S. Lewis was uh, also a- acknowledging when your emotions are not right or not in accord with how God made you to be. So he he maybe in a, in a letter, he mentions that he doesn't enjoy the company of small children. And he doesn't just say that that's who I he says, I recognize that that's wrong. That's something wrong with me. I know that's not supposed to be that way, but I find myself not enjoying their company and like. God's going to have to change that in me. And that was so helpful for me to see because it's okay to acknowledge that my emotions aren't where they should be, even while I acknowledge that I I want them to be that way, even as I don't want them currently in this state. Yeah, I think Ruiz is quite right about that. And Mm -hmm. what I would say is that emotions like other, I think emotions have cognitive value. One of the ways we learn uh, moral uh, truths is through our emotions, as the examples I just showed. But like our other cognitive faculties, our emotions are not perfect. Yeah. They are very imperfect. And because we are sinful, sometimes they are very imperfect, very mm. wrong. And so when we have insight, 
uh, from, say, scripture or even from ordinary uh, human wisdom, that that's the case, then we should be able to recognize when our emotions are misfiring, just as sometimes we recognize when our uh, perceptual processes are misfiring, or we might recognize that our memory isn't working very well. Yeah. Uh, things like that. So our human cognitive faculties are are real and they're good and they're God-given, but they aren't perfect because we're creatures. We're finite. And not only are we finite, we're sinful. Yeah. And so we have to be able to make corrections uh, and, and understand the ways in which uh, our, our, uh, our faculties, including our emotions, but we shouldn't mistrust all emotion just uh, because right. of that. Totally. Yeah. Um, diving back once more on, on concepts. Um, so I, I love what you said about uh, Wittgenstein in the paper and then here on the podcast as well. And, and I've been uh, diving deep into Donald Davidson's theory of uh, concept acquisition, where he goes in for this triangulation where a, a, a teacher teaches a student or a, or a child about a desk. And then over a period of time, they form this concept. I hadn't really thought about it in such a rich way that, that you put it about even learning moral lessons and stuff. I, I really like that. But I wonder, as I've been looking into like um, empiricist theories of concept acquisition, I was wondering, you know, are there any concepts that are innate? And I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Do do we do you think that humans ha- are born with any innate uh, or native concepts? Well, I, I think that uh, a lot depends on what we mean by innate. Okay. Uh, Locke dismissed innate ideas on the grounds that, well, infants don't have them. <laughs> mm-hmm. But of course, I think... The, the way the way to think about this is not to forget to forget the term innate per se. It's okay. is to ask are 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 we hardwired in such a way that we naturally acquire certain concepts? And I think the answer to that is absolutely, uh, yeah. certainly that's the case. So uh, empiricism is, I think, seriously flawed. Uh-huh. For example, um, uh, Many empiricists uh, think that there's something problematic about, uh, say, the idea of God, because uh, no one has seen God. <laughs> you know, no one's experienced God. How do we get the concept of God? Uh, yeah. uh, uh, Hobbes has a field day uh, with that with that problem. <laughs> but interestingly, um, uh, you might think that uh, the concept of God might you might think it would be a very abstract and hard to acquire concept. But it turns out that it's very easy to acquire and that uh, children in every culture seem to instinctively and intuitively acquire a concept of God or gods. Hmm. Uh, we're we're hard, sort of hardwired. And even secular psychologists who are atheists now admit that this is a fact, Yeah, that, uh, that, that, that there's something natural about coming to believe in God. You have to sort of st- stamp it out. The natural thing... Uh, one one atheist psychologist said, "Children are natural-born promiscuous theists." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and you might think, well, how could you have a concept of, uh, say, omniscience? That seems like a really high-order, complicated concept. But guess what? Children grasp omniscience before they grasp finite. If if you hmm. uh, if you if you do an experiment in which a child uh, something is covered up and an adult comes into the room and the adult doesn't, hasn't seen the child thinks the adult will know what's under, even though the yeah. adult wasn't there. 
because children sort of naturally think that adults know everything. Wow, that's such a good point. When I, fr- I remember I told my first lie, and this is t- really sad, but when I was a kid, and I thought for sure my parents knew. I thought they could read my mind. I thought they knew. And when I found out they didn't, that's when lying became a little bit more easy, which was really terrible. But yeah, that's, yeah. that's right. That's a really good point. I never thought about, about it like yeah. that. Cognitive psychology has done a lot of work uh, on, uh, on how children acquire their religious ideas. And this is a total revolution. When I was in college back in the 60s, mm-hmm. uh, behaviorism was in its heyday. Yeah. And so everything was supposed to be learned because empiricism was the foundation of behaviorism. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, it turns out everything is not learned, at least the capacity, even the capacity for language. Yes. Uh, there, there's, there's something hardwired in yeah. the structure of grammar. You can tell this because children make mistakes uh, uh, they they regularize irregular verbs because it shows that they've sort of mastered. Even though I've never heard anybody misuse the language in that way. Oh yeah. They they uh, uh, so we we have to say an irregular verb like he he learned that and the, the the regular would say he I learned this he learned it, but there are irregular verbs like uh, he you know to go somewhere he went there yesterday. Yeah. But the child will say he goed there. He'll add an ed yeah. to the verb to go uh, because he's learned that rule uh, instinctively. Even though he's never heard anybody say goed, yeah, he uh, uh, that's a point that Chomsky made over against B.F. Skinner. Okay, in his review of Skinner's book on language, Skinner had written a book called Verbal Behavior on how children acquire language. And Chomsky, who was a linguist, showed that it was just rubbish. Wow. I never, yeah, that's so good. You, in, in order to make that kind of mistake, you'd have to have mastered that. And there's, they never heard anyone say goad before. That's yeah, so good. A two-year-old already knows a lot of grammar. That you, How would they possibly, nobody's taught them that grammar. Right, <laughs> right. They never heard the rule. They just instinctively get it. Yeah. Yeah, that's so good. Well, uh, so Dr. Evans, uh, in, in closing here, I wanted to leave the audience with some, uh, maybe some practical steps for uh, for gaining wisdom, for becoming a sage, for growing. In, in, uh, my, my father always taught me uh, to ask God every day for wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Um, and so I, I do that. So I want to leave some, some practical uh, steps. How can the listener grow in wisdom, knowledge, and understanding uh, today and the rest of the week? Well, one, one way is uh, by, uh, of course, I think Scripture is a fount of wisdom because mm-hmm. Scripture... Uh, teaches us about God and about the saints and about the apostles. And these people are exemplars. They, that is, we learn about wisdom by imitating people who are wise. Yeah. Uh, and so I would say, hang around people that you know, who you recognize to be wise. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, people from your church or your community. Uh, uh, and also learn from the mistakes uh, people who weren't wise. So many people think of Heidegger as a great philosopher, and I, I even learned some things from Heidegger. I used him in this article you yep. referred to. But I don't consider Heidegger to be a great philosopher because he joined the Nazi party. Yeah, He was a sincere Nazi, and he never repented of that. He never said, oh, I, I was terribly wrong. Look at all what the Nazis did. They killed six million Jews. That's terrible. And I think the problem is Heidegger had a tin ear for compassion. Hmm. He he really didn't care. Uh, to him, uh, uh, 
you know, the the murdering of Jews or 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 all that just didn't matter very much. Uh, yeah. He didn't really care about uh, people who were persecuted or or. Uh, so I think you can learn by by seeing where did this guy go wrong, uh, yeah. and I think he went wrong because. He was an arrogant person, and he didn't care about the poor. He didn't care about the weak or about the sick. Uh, yeah. but, but we can also learn from the positive, from the exemplar. St. Paul says, you know, learn from me. Try to imitate me just as I try to imitate Christ. Right. So exemplars are a big part of the story. Uh, mm. and, and, of course, uh, one of the things that, that is really crucial to becoming wise is not thinking that you're wiser than you are. Yeah. One of the big b- barriers to wisdom is arrogance. And one of the keys to wisdom is humility uh, and an openness to learning from other people, even learning from people who might be our enemies. They might, they might have true insights into our character that we need to pay attention to. Yeah. So those are, those are some of the things that I would say are, are very, uh, very important. And and don't uh, don't overestimate what we might call uh, academic learning. Okay. But recognize that true wisdom is something that very simple and ordinary people can have, particularly if they have, you might say, an understanding of themselves and God and who God is and who they are, and an understanding of of God's ideals for us, hmm. his uh, his his norms, his purposes. Yeah, that's a good word. That's a great way to end it. Um, that that is so good. So again, folks, the the article that we went over is "Wisdom as Conceptual Understanding: A Platonist Perspective" in the Journal of Faith and Philosophy. And my guest is Dr. C. Stephen Evans. Uh, you can check out a lot of. He's got a bunch of books. Just go to Amazon, check those out. I'll put a link yeah. to uh, to some of them. Um, maybe most recently is your history of uh, of Western philosophy, or do you have another one after? My most recent book that's been published is. Uh, uh, Kierkegaard and spirituality: Accountability as the meaning of human existence. Okay. And I think that's. Uh, and I also have a book coming out from Oxford called uh, "Living Accountably: Accountability as a Virtue." Mm. And it's basically a book about why it is that uh, we, as human beings, as social beings, should recognize what we owe to other people to whom we owe accounts. Sometimes mm. we're uh, it's part of the virtue of justice. We we are accountable to God. We're accountable to each other. And so I think this is a neglected uh, virtue in contemporary philosophy. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to bring out accountability as a virtue. I had a grant from the Templeton Religion Trust to work on this. So okay. that book will be out probably in December from Oxford University Press, Living Accountably. Living Accountably. Okay. That's, that sounds great. That, uh, that actually matches up with uh, something Kevin Van Hooser has worked on, uh, talking about answerability and, and trying to um, flesh out yeah. what it means to be the image of God. That's, that's so good. I'm really excited for that. Uh, maybe I can coax you into coming back on and talk about that. That'd be great. Well, um, for now, folks, that's going to have to do it. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.